It is uh, great to be with you. I come from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. When we were landing on Friday, I thought it was great just to see Earth, something we haven't seen much of in the last few weeks. It's been uh, lots of ice and snow, so it's uh, great to be here and great to be able to fellowship with you. I was thinking as I was anticipating this morning and being with you, that although I don't know you at all, there are two things that I do know about you that really have an awful lot to do with the passage of Scripture that we're going to be looking at. The first thing I know is that your life hasn't worked according to your plan. If you don't know that, you are seriously comatose. Isn't it an amazing thing? As much as we plan and we think and we look forward, our lives don't work according to our plan. Last year didn't work according to your plan. Last month didn't work according to your plan. This week didn't work according to your plan. Some of you look a bit haggard. Maybe this morning didn't work according to your plan. I sat not too long ago on the platform of one of the largest Presbyterian churches in the world in Seoul, South Korea. church with a remarkable gospel witness, a church of over 35,000 members. And I sat waiting to preach, and I couldn't grasp how that Paul Tripp, born and raised in Toledo, Ohio, knowing who I am, would be there on this platform. It didn't make any sense to me. And I, just overwhelmed with the glory of God's plan, I began to weep. Uh, And I couldn't get my composure, my translator was looking at me with a look of fear. And that look of fear was, I'm here to translate you, I haven't brought my own sermon. You know that's true of all of our lives, that clearly there's a plan in our lives that is, is not our own. There's a, there's a second thing I know, that you are always trying to figure out your life. None of us ever leave our lives alone. Human beings think Some of us show it more than others. But we all think, maybe you could say it this way, you don't live life based on the facts of your experience, you live life based on your interpretation of the facts. And the way you interpret your life has everything to do with the way that you respond to your life. Everyone in this room is a philosopher, everyone in this room is a theologian, everyone in this room is interpreting life in ways that are profoundly important. And so we need, we need the truth of the Lord. You know, there are probably two questions that uh, really do frame all of our lives. And the questions are this, what in the world is going on and how in the world am I supposed to respond to it? And you're answering those questions whether you realize it every day of your lives. Let, Let me... Let me give you a bit of an illustration that I think will help here. I'm a lover of big cities. Maybe you're not, but I am a lover of big cities. And because of what I do, I've been able to be in many of the big cities of the world. And, and I'm a bit of an explorer. I don't mind getting lost. I figure God's earth is only so big, I'll find my way back. And I was in Seoul, South Korea. I was wandering around one day, and I got myself just completely lost. And I wandered into a a little Korean bakery and fell into that thinking that, no, if I talk slowly, I could bridge the language gap. 
And so very slowly I said, I'm lost. The man didn't really respond. He just sort of looked at me. He was busy doing something. And so I thought, well, maybe if I, if I add volume, that will help. And so I said more loudly, I'm lost. And this little Korean man said to me, where are you from in America, mister? And not really getting the clue, I said, Philadelphia. Now, here's why I tell this story. Pretend with me that you and I are on the corner of 7th Avenue and 34th Street in New York City. In case you don't know that corner, that's where Macy's is. Maybe you've seen on television the big Macy's parade for Thanksgiving. And, and you know you have to get up further in Manhattan to Rockefeller Center, but you're profoundly lost. You don't know where you are. And you're anxious and you're nervous and you want to get to your destination, but you don't know where to go. Think about it with me for a moment. What do you need? Now, I know what's in your mind. The, the first thing you think of is, well, you need directions. But I would propose to you, you need something much more than a set of directions. Because if I give you directions that get you from 7th Avenue and 34th Street up to Rockefeller Center, and you see whatever you're going to see there, and you leave and you walk two blocks away, what's your condition again? Your condition is that you're profoundly lost again. And so... Think about it. What you need as you're standing on that corner and you don't know where you are is more than directions. You need what the man who has the ability to give you directions has in his brain. You know what he has? He has the helicopter view of Manhattan embedded in his brain. And as he's standing there on the street with you, he's actually flying above Manhattan. He sees how all the streets connect with all the streets and so he can't get lost. Now, that's what God's Word gives us. God's Word is dotted with story summaries because, actually, the Word of God is a great story. It's the story of redemption. And occasionally, a writer will blow us up to that helicopter view, that grand view of all things, because the writers of Scripture know, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that you get lost. You lose sight of God's story, you lose sight of your place in it. And when you get lost, you need more than directions. You need that helicopter view that orients you, tells you where you are, where you need to go. And if you have that helicopter view in your brain, you won't continue to get lost. Now we're ready to look at our passage. Because 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9, is God blowing us up sort of flying above earth, looking down and understanding the glory and the grandeur of God's plan for us. If you don't understand 1 Peter 3-9, through I want to tell you this. You are lost in your own personal Manhattan. You can't possibly understand life without this passage of Scripture. It's that profound. It's that significant. Let me read again for you, just verses 3 through 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, 
who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in this last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love, though now you not see him, you yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now this passage has a very typical biblical construction to it. I want to say it this way. It's a then, then, now construction. A then, then, now. This passage really is a summary of God's whole plan of redemption. Let's look at the first then, the then of the past. Verse 3, Blessed be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now there's many things that we could say about that. You could literally spend months unpacking that verse of Scripture. But I want you to understand that Peter, in those words, is really seeking to summarize everything that's happened in biblical history up until this point. He's saying this, don't you understand what before the foundations of the world God has been working on? He's been working on your new birth. He's been working on this. Blessed be the God and Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It was all for this. It was all moving to this. This has been the plan of God. Now think about this. Brothers and sisters, as you read the Old Testament, you are not reading the dusty history of saints of old. You are literally reading your biography. Because every king and every location, and every judge, and every provision of God, every miracle, everything God did was part of a plan to provide new birth for His people. How amazing is that? And in every situation, and in every location, and in every moment, God had your name in His mind. He was in the process of providing for you new birth through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Wow. And in... An economy of words. Peter literally summarizes everything that God has been intent to do throughout all of human history. He has harnessed the forces of nature. He has controlled the events of human history in order to provide new birth through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead for his people. That's your identity. Now, I don't know what that does for you when you hear that. But you ought to sit amazed at the stunning love of God for you. How could it possibly be that God could love us this much? And then there's the then of the future. Verse 4. To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in this last time. 
Peter looks out into the future. He says, do you understand your future? You have an inheritance. Notice his words here. Incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away. Let, let me put it in more modern terms. You have a spiritual trust fund that no one can touch. You have a spiritual trust fund that has no Enron. Kept in heaven for you. Brothers and sisters, I don't know if, if I can wrap words around this. But I'll try. What this means is, all of the things in human life that are truly worth living for, truly worth having, are not only the gift of God, hear this, they are utterly unassailable. Do you hear that? They can take your job. They can take your house. They can take your reputation, but they cannot take your inheritance. And when you give yourself to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, when you give yourself to live out His values in the hallways and kitchens and bathrooms and bedrooms and vans of everyday life, you are giving yourself to something that is absolutely sure and absolutely secure that no one can ever remove from you. How's that for hope? How's that for confidence? And so I could go forth in courage and fear and hope because I know every investment in the things of the Lord is an investment that's sure. But that's not all. Notice what he says. To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Now watch who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Not only is God reserving your inheritance, He's keeping you. Now, I would propose to you that no bank has ever done that for anybody. Can you imagine my putting $50,000 in a bank? And the bank offers a guaranteeing that that investment would grow and be secure. And then he would say to me, and Mr. Tripp, I'm assigning to you the greatest team of physicians. I'm assigning to you bodyguards. I'm assigning to you a dietitian. I'm assigning to you a whole team of consultants because not only are we going to keep your investment, we're going to keep you. Brothers and sisters, that's exactly what God is doing. Because what good does it do if you have an inheritance that's sure and you get lost? And so there's this bifactoral surety as I look to my future. Not only is there an inheritance laid away for me, not only is it true that every investment I make for Christ is an investment that's sure, my future is sure. Because the same God who keeps that inheritance is the same God who will keep me by the power of His grace. Wow. So I look back. I look back at a identity in the past that literally goes back before the foundations of the world where everything that was operating in all the moments of human history was moving toward my redemption. I look to the future, to this sure and secure future where not only is my inheritance protected, but I'm protected by the same grace of God. Then, 
then, now. Now look at verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, though, what's the next word? Now. You see, Peter's, as much as we would celebrate the glory of what he says about the past, and as much as we would celebrate the glory of what he says about the future, Peter's real interest is in the here and now. Because Peter knows something that's very true of many people in the body of Christ. We understand salvation past. We understand salvation future. But there's a huge gap in our understanding of salvation here and now. We don't tend to understand the dynamic and significant things that God is doing by His grace in the here and now. Let me ask you this question. If you had to write in 25 words or less, this is what God is doing in the here and now in my life, what would you write? Because as much as you understand the past and as much as you understand the future, it is profoundly important that you understand what God is doing right now. And my experience as I travel around is there's huge misunderstandings about that that cause people to get into great personal and spiritual difficulty. Because if your life doesn't work according to your plan, you better understand the plan so you can be part of it, right? And you know you're not sovereign enough to have planned yesterday. We just need to get a grip. How many days are we going to have to live? Planning our day, the night before or in the morning. Only be shocked at the end of the day. How much life didn't operate according to our plan to realize there is a plan and we better understand it. And I am actually sovereign over very little in my life. It's amazing. I was uh, on a very busy day. Found myself in Philadelphia, an old American city with very narrow streets, in the midst of traffic. And I was irritated in the traffic, something I'm sure you can relate to. And I had this amazing sort of godlike thought that flashed across my brain, a momentary delusion of my own sovereignty. I thought, don't they know that I have somewhere to go? Isn't that amazing? I was expecting people to look in their rearview mirror and say, oh, Paul's behind us. And, you know, drive off the side of the road like, like the waters of the Red Sea. And I drive through and say, thank you, thank you. I'll be here again tomorrow. See, if you sit wishing you had greater control, you don't understand the plan. And so it's very important that we understand verses 6 through 9 because verses 6 through 9 are really what Peter is concerned about. He is writing to people who are in severe circumstances. These are people who are suffering. And it's important that they understand what's going on in their lives, as it is for us. Okay, verse 6. And I'll read 6 through 9 again for you. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith being more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now let me 
Just look at verse 6 with you again. In this you greatly rejoice, though now, for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. Whatever we want to say about now, Peter immediately couples now with grief and trial. Just what you didn't want to hear. Whatever God is doing in my now moment, it's a very different plan than what I would typically want for myself. I don't wake up in the morning and say, you know, Lord, my life has been way too easy. I've enjoyed way too much ease and comfort. Lord, I just pray that you would send more difficulty my way. If you love me, could you send me some more difficulty? I don't think anybody in this room has ever prayed that. Yet immediately... When Peter talks about the here and now and talks about what God is doing in the here and now, he couples this now moment with grief and trial. Now, in your mind, you ought to immediately say, why? Why would that be the very first thing that Peter mentions? Because it's the last thing that we want to think about, right? If you were able to look down the next week and you would see grief and trial, what would you want to do? I know. You would want to figure out a way to avoid it, right? You're not going to say, yeah, just what I've been looking for, a little more suffering. No, you would want to do anything you could to avoid that. And yet, That's exactly what Peter thinks about. It's the first thing he thinks about when he thinks about what in the world is going on in the here and now. Now let's continue to read. I'm going to read verse 6 just so we can pick up the thought again. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, and we'll stop there. Now, you can't understand this passage unless you understand the metaphor that's in the middle of it. The best way that Peter can discuss what God is doing now is by calling on the metaphor of metallurgy. Now, let me explain. When a metal is mined... It's in an ore state. Metal in its ore state has inherent corruptions in it. And those corruptions, in fact, rob the metal of its strength and rob it of its beauty. You have probably never worn ore. When you wear jewelry, you wear refined metals. Because ore is not, in fact, very attractive. And it's not very durable because it has corruptions in it. And so what the metallurgist does is he applies white-hot heat to liquefy the metal. And as that happens, it boils those imperfections out of it. Therefore, helping that metal to reach its highest state of beauty and its highest state of strength. Now... Fasten your seatbelts and put on your crash helmets. Here we go. As you come to Christ, you are an horrific Christian. I didn't say horrific. Horrific. You are actually 
in an or state, you still have within you corruptions that rob you of your strength and rob you of your beauty as a believer. Now, if in fact God loves you, and if in fact He has this future for you, He could not possibly leave you in that state. A God who would be willing to leave you in that state is neither faithful nor loving. And so, here's what we have to face. In the grandeur of His redemptive love, God will boil you. Brothers and sisters, we must stop calling the difficulty in our life, naming it as the product of God's unfaithfulness and inattention. That difficulty in the life of a believer is in fact a proof of his redemptive love. God will boil you. He will bring things into your life that are difficult. He will bring trial. He will bring grief. Not because He doesn't love you, but because He loves you. Now listen, everything in Western culture mitigates against that. Because we have a culture that has deified pleasure, a culture that is enslaved to comfort, a culture that curses even minor difficulty. Listen, we are a people who can lose it at a flat tire. We can throw a fit because we haven't been served the kind of meal that we thought at a restaurant. We'll sue somebody because our coffee's too hot. And nowhere in the culture around you will you get any kind of support for this kind of view of life. We curse suffering because we live for our own comfort. And there are many people, probably in this room, there surely are many believers who don't understand they are in a constant agenda conflict with your Lord. Your Lord is not working on your temporal personal comfort. He's working on your holiness. And He will make your life uncomfortable because He chooses for you to be holy. That's what He's about. Listen, if you stand back, you can figure this out. Because the Bible gives you the information you need. Think about marriage. We go into marriage thinking that it's going to be a container for our happiness. You know, if you've gone through Western culture dating, which is just the site of used car sales, you're set up for trouble. Because, you know, in Western culture dating, the last thing you want is a person to really know you. You hide the real you. You smell the best, you look the best, you act the best that you ever have a woman who is trying to win a man will watch sports that she doesn't understand. And she'll say, sure, honey, I'll I'll watch another game. Now she'll give it away because in the middle of a very important game, she'll say, don't their uniforms look cute? That's something a man would never say. If you thought it as a man, you'd be terrified. Or a man who, who hates shopping will shop. Sure, dear, we can go to another 12 stores. And then six months into the marriage, the lady's crying, this is not the man I married. This is the man you married. The man you dated was a fake. See, why do we get disappointed? Because we think that marriage is about our temporal personal happiness. And we think the job of our mate is to make us happy. Listen, your husband and wife, is, that's not their job. And if your happiness depends on the function of another human being, you are a human being in a miserable condition. Now, what is marriage about? Have you ever asked yourself the question, why would God 
put marriage, the world's most comprehensive relationship, in the middle of sanctification, the world's most important, incomplete process. Wouldn't it have been easier to get a sanctified first? I mean, who hasn't wished for a fully sanctified husband or wife? Throw in self-parenting children, that would work. Now, why do we think that? Because what we want is present personal happiness. That's what we're living for. And marriage confuses us. Because throwing two sinners together isn't often a happy experience. Well, there are moments of happiness. You know what marriage is? It's one of God's most efficient boiling pots. That's what it is. In marriage, my true heart gets exposed. My true character gets exposed. My struggle with sin gets exposed. My struggle to love and to be kind and to give and to serve and to be patient and perseverant gets exposed. Marriage, if you look at it that way, will drive you to the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ. And that's what it's meant to do. You see, God's purpose in marriage goes way deeper than human happiness. God's purpose in marriage is profound human holiness. So God will let you go through things in your marriage you've never planned. Because He's driven with this goal. Now what does that mean for us? I think it means this. We need to proclaim in the church of Jesus Christ and to one another the theology of uncomfortable grace. I would propose to you that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in this now period of time, because it's meant to make you holy, largely comes in uncomfortable forms. And again and again, when brothers and sisters are crying, where is the grace of God? They're getting it and they don't even know it. Here's the agenda conflict. We want to live with a destination mentality. We want to live as if we get it all now. We want to live and experience all the possible good stuff we could experience. And brothers and sisters, this isn't a moment of destination. This is a moment of preparation. Destinations to come. And everything that God is doing is preparing, 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 because there's an eternal place that you are not ready for yet. And if you live with a destination mentality, you're going to be very confused at God's day-by-day, moment-by-moment preparatory work in your life. Notice what Peter says. Verse 9, you are receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter says, you know what you're getting in this difficult moment? You're getting exactly what you prayed for, your salvation. God is completing that work that He literally did begin before the foundations of the world. Now I want to ask you this question before we, we look at the second part of this passage. Are you in an agenda conflict with your Redeemer? Don't be super spiritual with me here for a moment. Be honest. What is it that you really want for your life? 
Is this what you want? That you desperately want to be growingly refined till as a believer you reach your highest state of strength and your highest state of beauty. Yes, conformity to the Lord Jesus Christ. Or would you rather have ease of finances, ease of career, ease of marriage, ease of parenting, ease of lifestyle, the appreciation of people. And when you get that, you are glad to say that God is faithful and loving. And when you don't, you struggle with silent, unspoken questions of His goodness. Be honest. Where are you? What do you really want? Now, I will confess to you, this passage confronts me. Now, we want to look at the second half of this passage, beginning with verse 13. Verses 10 through 12, there's a bit of a parenthetical discussion about the prophets, and then Peter jumps back in with a therefore, which tells us that this passage connects to the first passage. Let me read it for you and then describe the content. I think it's very helpful. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully on the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lust, as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on a father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourself throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Since you have purified your souls and obeying the truth through the spirit and sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. Now, 1 Peter 3 through 9, as we've looked at, is this helicopter view of what God's doing with a particular focus on the now. It's the big picture. Peter is saying, this is what God is doing now. God is refining you. You're still a bit of an horrific Christian. There are still corruptions in you. And so God's going to boil you to boil out those corruptions so you continue to grow in your strength and grow in your beauty as a believer. That's what's going on. If that's what's going on, then the question is, how should I respond? How should I participate in what's going on? And that's what is in the second part of this passage. Or if that's the plot, how do I live inside of the plot? If this is what God is doing in my life, how can I move in the same direction that God is moving? Or if this is God's agenda, how can I make that agenda my agenda? Are you with me? If this is the plan, how can I make that plan my practical plan for the way that I live every day? Is that making sense to everybody? That's what the second half is about. 
And there is in these verses seven directives that I want to look with you at that really do define, okay, if this is what God is doing, how do I live inside of it? And I'm going to put these in my own words. First, verse 13, be careful what you think. Be careful what you think. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Brothers and sisters, I am deeply persuaded that the vast majority of the sin struggles, the wrong behavior of believers is rooted in sloppy and unbiblical thinking. The Word of God is stunning in its wisdom. It's expansive in its content. It is, in fact, sufficient for life. And yet I need to go out into life thinking in distinctly biblical ways. Brothers and sisters, are you capable of interpreting life biblically? Could I throw topics at you right now, practical topics of human life, and could you look at those from a distinctly biblical ways? If you can't, you are a Christian in trouble. Because every day you're responding, every day you're making decisions, if you're not making those decisions based on biblical thinking, what basis are you making those decisions on? Now, I'm being a bit hard on you here, but I think it's my job. I've spent 30 years counseling brothers and sisters. And it impresses me again and again that 95% of what these people receive from me is already written in the Bibles they've been carrying around. And the other 5% is my helping them just apply that to their lives, but they've been carrying it around with them. It's like actually being in New York City and having the map in your hands and you're lost and you don't ever master the map. You got the map. Second, be sober. I think perhaps a better translation is be self-control. That's what the Bible's talking about when it talks about sobriety. Exercise self-control. If I sat with you And watch the video of your last six weeks. Sounds uncomfortable already, doesn't it? Would I say, this is a person who has understood their ability to exercise self-control. You know what God did for you? God knew that your struggle with sin is so great that it was not enough to forgive you. He literally has unzipped you and got inside of you by His Spirit. So that you now have the power to say no. Look with me at Galatians chapter 5. Please turn there in your Bibles. I want you to see this. I just wanted to look at one verse. I wish we could look at this whole chapter because it is so exciting. Verse 24 of Galatians 5. And those who are Christ, are you ready for this? Have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now, I need to make a little bit of an explanation for you here. What Paul is saying is that you you were united with Christ in His death and His resurrection. When Christ died, you died. When Christ rose, you rose to newness of life. Jesus did not purchase savability. Christ took names to the cross. I am united with Christ. And so His Death and resurrection is effective for me. And Paul says in Romans 1, 6-14, that means that nothing need master me other than King Christ. 
Christ has broken the bondage, the slavery, the power over all things over me but himself. Now Paul applies that to a dynamic life moment. You're going to be in situations where you're immediately greeted with powerful passions and powerful desires. Know what a passion is? A passion is a motivating emotion. You can sense my passion right now. You're going to be moments of powerful passion and powerful desire. And because of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, because of your union with Christ, you can say no to those passions and no to those desires, and you can turn and go in another direction. That's exercising self-control. It's believing in your identity in Christ and saying, I do not have to go where these emotions are leading me. I do not have to go where these desires are leading me. I can say no and I can go in another direction. If you want to destroy a relationship, if you want to mess up your life, you go wherever your emotions lead you and you go wherever your desires lead you. And you'll make a mess of things. And so you have been given the ability to exercise self-control. I would ask you, did you do it this week? Parents, when you were very frustrated... At your child, did you choose to exercise the power of the Holy Spirit that's indwelling you and your union with Christ and exercise self-control? When you had that desire to hurt your spouse the way they just hurt you, did you exercise your union with Christ and the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit and turn and go in another direction? Or are you giving way to the very thing that God is boiling you to drive out of you. It's like a piece of ore that keeps jumping out of the pot. Third directive. You can see how, just how fundamentally practical you are. Rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Third directive. Watch where you place your hope. Where's your hope placed? Be honest. What right now are you hoping will give you meaning and purpose? Satisfaction and contentment. Joy. What has your hope? You know why that's important? Because what has your hope will have your heart, and what has your heart will have your behavior. What has your hope? You see, the only reliable hope is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that's my possession now and that will extend out to the furthest regions of eternity. I can rely on the bounty and the extensiveness of His grace. I can hope in that. The Lord who has come into my life will never leave me. And His grace will be ever operative in my life. I can bank on that, but I can't bank on anything else. And the theology of hope in Scripture would say this. If your hope disappoints you, it's because you have the wrong hope. What has your hope right now? What's at the other side of your if only? If only I had. What what comes next? Fourth directive, verse 14. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lust as in your ignorance. Don't give way to wrong desires. Don't give way to wrong desires. Brothers and sisters, the war of desire is not over. James 4 would tell us there's a a battle for the heart that literally goes on in every situation and every location of human life. 
It's a war of desire. You need to understand that sin is basically and fundamentally idolatrous. What sin does to me is make me worship and serve the creation more than I worship and serve the Creator. And that happens in a whole lot of ways. You go in to have a conversation with your husband or wife, and you really do, in the beginning, you really do desire that it will be a conversation that will create unity and understanding. But somewhere in that conversation, the other person presses one of your buttons. And all of a sudden, you no longer want unity, you no longer want love, you no longer want understanding, you want to win. You want for once in your life for that person to say, you're right, dear, I'm absolutely wrong. Now that's in fact an evil desire. Because it's born out of self-love, it's not born out of love for that other person. Now are you giving way to those desires? Now listen. That desire fits for a person who doesn't know the Lord, right? Because if you don't know the Lord, if you haven't given your life to Him, the highest thing to live for in life is what? Yourself. So selfishness fits. But it doesn't fit for you. As Peter says, that's back in the time when you were ignorant of the gospel. It doesn't fit now. And there's a whole host of selfish desires that can grip you. Don't give way to wrong desires. How are you doing in that area? Fifth directive. As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it's written, be holy for I am holy. Let me say it in my own words. Be committed to do what is right no matter what. Be committed to do what is right no matter what. I was, as a young boy, I went to a German Lutheran school. And I was catechized with a Luther's small catechism. And there was a question in the catechism that said this, how is it that God demonstrates His holiness? And the answer was, in everything that He does. Now, it's a bit of a trick question because you would think, well, God demonstrates His holiness by the cross. There's the, there's the big demonstration of His holiness. It's actually not the answer. The answer is God demonstrates His holiness in everything He does. Because He is holy, it's impossible for Him not to do anything that's holy. I can remember my mom was quite a theologian and I, I ran home wanting to ask her the question. She took the bait. I said, Mom, how does God demonstrate His holiness? She said, by the cross. I said, no, Mommy, in everything He does. That's the model. Doesn't matter what the pressure of the circumstances are. Doesn't matter how hot the heat is on you. Doesn't matter how evil the other person is responding. Doesn't matter what the cultural pressures are. It doesn't matter whether you're sick or feeling well. It doesn't matter whether it's early morning or late at night. The call is, be committed to do what is right no matter what. And I would ask you this question, where are you giving yourself the permission to do what is wrong? I'm not feeling well today. That's why I've been mean and selfish. You don't have this boss of mine. You're not raising these kids. You're not living with my financial pressure. You don't know what it's like 
to have this husband or this wife or, or whatever we would say. When you say that, what you are actually doing is giving yourself permission to do what is less than what God defines as right. Are you committed to do what is right no matter what? Sixth directive. And this is an interesting one. It comes in verse 17. And if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each man's work, conduct yourself throughout the time of your stay here in fear. Now, it's a little bit confusing. It doesn't mean you're supposed to walk around scared to death. What he means by fear is actually as an alien or a stranger. That's what he's talking about. You know when you're in a situation you don't belong and you're a little bit uncomfortable because you know this isn't home for me? That's what he's talking about. That's what he means by fear. And, and let me give you an example I think can get you on board with this for what he's saying. I don't know how many of you enjoy camping. But my view of camping is the whole purpose of camping is to make you love home. When you first go out camping, you like the fact that the food cooked over fire tastes different. That's ash. <laughs> and you like that you, you're living in this portable dwelling called a tent and, and you, sort of, you sort of like that. Three or four days into it, you're tired of gritty food. You're tired of a fire that doesn't burn as well as it's supposed to. Your tent has taken on smells that just you just don't know where they came from. And you begin to think about your wonderful mattress and your stove that you just turn on like this and that refrigerator that keeps food so nicely. And you're hoping that someone will say, let's go home early. Now, in America, we've missed the whole point of camping because we now camp in 60-foot Winnebago's with the kitchen of Emerald Lagasse and a satellite dish and a 42-inch plasma screen television. Your camping is better than home. You get the point here? You see, Peter is saying, if it wasn't with the things of this world that God purchased your salvation, if life is all about preparing myself for eternity as God works His grace in me, then the goal of life is not to work hard in making this as comfortable as it could possibly be. Do you understand that the church of Jesus Christ in our generation is scarily materialistic? There is a report recently that, that took the population of committed evangelical congregations across America and calculated if everybody in the church would just tithe, there would be billions of dollars for the kingdom of God that are not being collected right now. Because you see, we're not living as strangers. We're spending so much time making this as comfortable as it can possibly be. No wonder we're not excited about going home. And what God's called me to is this pared-down existence a tent and a little bit of fire because my eyes on eternity and I want to be part of this preparation thing that God is doing in my life. Live here as a stranger. Live here like an alien. Live here like a pilgrim because you're going home. And then the final directive, verse 22, love one another fervently from the heart. What's the direction? Here it is. Focus 
on living a practical life of love. Brothers and sisters, I want to say this to you. Life in a fallen world is hard. You don't live every day having your Christianity reinforced. Peter Jennings, after giving the scary events of the day, doesn't say, but never fear. He rules the host of heaven and the inhabitants of earth, and no one can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? God is sovereign, have hope. Peter Jennings, the evening news. You get godless and materialistic and sexually immoral views of life pounded at you every day. Life in a fallen world is hard. It's fraught with temptation. Being boiled is hard. You know how sinners tend to suffer? Sinfully. Do you ever have that sweet old person who's suffering in the hospital, going to the room in the hospital and they're not sweet? They sort of, they bark at you and you're surprised because it's not the way that they normally act? We tend to suffer sinfully. And so, we need the love and encouragement of brothers and sisters around us. We were never meant to do this alone. This thing that God is doing is literally a community project. God's placed you near people because they need your love. They need your encouragement. They need hope. They need your faith. They need to be pointed in the right direction again. They need to once again focus on the good that the Lord is doing even though they can't see it. They need to find that confidence in their identity in Christ. They need to believe once again that they are filled with the Holy Spirit and they can say no to the temptation that's facing them. We were never meant to do this alone. Be careful what you think. Be self-controlled. Watch where you place your hope. Don't give way to wrong desires. Be committed to do what is right. Live here like a stranger. Love one another deeply from the heart. Brothers and sisters, now is not a time of comfort and ease. Now is not a time of destination. Now is a time of preparation. You're still a bit of an horrific Christian. And so God will continue to boil you so you will reach your highest state of strength and your highest state of beauty, conformity to the Lord Jesus Christ. And He'll keep the fires of redemption burning until that goal is complete. Now here's what I would ask you. Is God's agenda your agenda for your life? If it is, you will do these seven things. God help us. Let's pray. Lord, what a powerful and practical and penetrating and convicting passage of Scripture. We are people who love the creation more than we love the Creator. And we want our comfort and we want our ease. We want life to work according to our plan and that often puts us at an agenda conflict with You. We pray that You would forgive us. And we pray that we would be excited about living inside of the plot of the wonderful things that you are doing in the ways that Peter so practically lays out in the precious name of the Lord Jesus who loved us 
and gave himself for us so that we would no longer live for ourselves, but for him. In Jesus' name, amen.